episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I am doing really, really well, Jody. I am really excited today (laughs) because this morning we get to talk to an old friend of ours, an amazing drummer, and an even better person, Christopher Alice joins us today on the Hello, podcast. everybody. Welcome to the show, Christopher. How are you? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm doing okay. Thank you. I've got my, uh, I've got my little drink and <laughs> ready to talk shop. So Sweet. Awesome. Very good. So what do you think, Jody? Should we just dive right into it? Because I think there's a lot of meat that we kind of want to get to today. Yeah, there's so much meat. We might actually break this down into two pieces, like two episodes. But let's just dive right in. I, right. I think we should. So, Christopher, maybe you can just – you're. I already introduced you as a drummer here, session drummer, live drummer, anything drum-related. But perhaps you can tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and what you find yourself doing these days. Sure. I've been out in Los Angeles now for quite a number of years. I grew up in upstate New York in Syracuse. My dad's a drummer and my mom sings. So music was always in the house. So I gravitated to music and, spe- and specifically the drums really early, about four mm-hmm. years old. So I've been playing professionally since I was about 15, 14, 15 or so. So four um, or five years now. Then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. After university, I made the decision to move out here. I didn't really have much in terms of expectations of what was going to happen other than just kind of wanting to be in a larger city and, you know, kind of get my ass handed to me a little bit and see what happens. And I've been able to kind of create for myself a little universe. I've carved a niche for myself, kind of based on the way that I approach the drums. And through that, you know, headspace and through that evolution, I've been able to Recorded and toured with Dina Carter of Strawberry Wine fame, Michael Nesmith from the Monkees. I was just on Mickey Dolenz's new album, um, which was cool. Played, obviously, with Jody and you back in the day, live and some recording. Um, I do a lot of TV and film stuff right now for different producers and composers. A lot of library stuff as well, where it's kind of work for hire and... You know, kind of catch as catch can. Well, when there's a pandemic going on, a lot of local and kind of regional songwriters as well. So I tend to keep myself pretty busy in the main. Yeah, I think that's, you know, just the the situation that you described there. I think it's really common these days where we have to, you know, be as broad as possible and be open to things and not just know this is what I do and just do one thing. We have to be open to to try to have our irons in, in a lot of different fires to kind of stay busy. Be yeah, quick absolutely. to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need to be able to, you know, you have to be quick to pivot. You really need to be able to adjust at a moment's notice. And you need to be willing to be flexible enough in your desire to really get into and understand and be part of the art. Because music isn't just new metal or jazz or pop or country or funk it's bite your tongue (laughs) well yeah you know i've always considered myself to be an omnivore as far Mm. as music is concerned i mean i certainly have the things that i love a little bit more than others like i'm a jazz head and i'll always be a jazz head so maybe i take that particular approach or that particular vibe into all of my different 
playing situations, but I'm still playing for whatever the music happens to be. Yeah, that's a lesson that I think a lot of people, not everybody does that right off the bat, but it's something that Jody and I have spoken about, not necessarily just on the podcast, but but just in general, how you sort of adopt that mindset as you get a little bit more experience, I think, that you start realizing that it's not about your chops, it's about the song. Yeah, it's yeah, always about absolutely. playing the song. And just as Chris is mentioning there, last night I actually was pulling out a song as we had spoken off air about the fact that I'm transcribing older tunes. And the one that I happened to pull out last night was one called Leads to Gold, which you played on. You played Brushes on it. And okay. I believe that was the one that we did use a live kit on it because there were a few times I think I had you recording with a V-drum kit and live cymbals. Yeah. But that yeah. one had the live brushes on the snare. It's one of those things where it was like that song required that vibe on it in terms of the drums. And it illustrates so perfectly what you just said. It's like it, rather than worrying about the chops, it's playing for the vibe of the song or what the song needs. You have to be willing to do it. You have to be playing what's idiomatically correct for whatever it is that you're getting called to do. Sure. And if you're not willing to do that, well, you're probably not going to get an awful lot of calls as time goes on. I want to keep getting a lot of calls. So <laughs> not, right, yeah. not only does it behoove me to do what I'm talking about, but I actually enjoy it because I always wind up learning something. If somebody's turning me on to a particular artist and I need to cop that, vibe well now i have another i've got another color in my palette that i can draw from and that's ultimately that's what being and i don't mean to use this word too flamboyantly but you know that's what being an artist is all about you know being able to pull from yeah. all these different disparate palettes or whatever in order to create something that is uniquely you so right. I well, love it's it. All I about get off on it. Steal yeah, from I multiple think, sources. Mm -hmm. Well, it's all about vocabulary, isn't it? I mean, whatever yeah. your musical instrument is, or even if we're talking just from a mixing engineering standpoint or producer standpoint, you learn little things along the way that you think, oh, that sounds really good. That's a cool technique. I might not use that on every track that I do, but it's going to be great if I come up against this one more time. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to go back a little bit to when you said you moved out to L.A. just to kind of pick your brain a little bit on this. Did you always have as a goal to sort of end up more or less as a session drummer or did you have the usual sort of like dream where you're like, I want to be – you know, in Jeff your Picaro. case perhaps like <laughs> – right, or, you know, Vinnie Colaiuta or, or somebody along those lines. Did you ever have the aspiration of being – a sort of band member in a band that was going to kind of make it big? Or did you always have your eyes set on more of the session scene, I guess? Well, it's interesting because when you mentioned Jeff Bacara and Vinnie Caliuta, I mean, obviously incredible session players, right. though, you know, Jeff with his time with Toto and then Vinnie with his time with Zappa and with his time with Sting and Jeff Beck and all that. So certainly they played with plenty of bands. But I mean, I was in a band... I was in several bands back in Syracuse, and one of them, which was a ska band at that particular point in time, and ska really had a resurgence, and it was a wonderful band, and we did a record. It was a subsidiary of Moon Records, so we were doing very well, but I was getting kind of bored 
with my own playing. I was getting bored with where I was. So when I moved out to LA, I never wanted to be a rock star. I can honestly say that, you know, I, I, that faded away by the time I was 16 or 17 because Good I saw you. people, <laughs> well, I saw, I saw people strutting around my hometown thinking they were rock stars. And I was like, well, I certainly don't want to be that. Right. Okay. I'd rather be, yeah. you know, I'd rather be somebody who it's a very kind of like workaday craftsman kind of approach. It's like, I want to go and I want to do my job and I want to do it really, really, really well. Mm. So all I wanted to do was be successful in really a very much a crapshoot kind of business, which is music, which is the arts in general. Yes. But that's what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, well, how do I make that a reality for myself? I'd have the experiences with different bands. And when I moved out to LA, obviously I knew that I was dropping myself into a much, much larger pool. But if I was able to make myself stand out in some way, maybe I would be able to start getting little sessions here or there and then just kind of see if I can snowball everything. And that's essentially what wound up happening. I had a couple of really wonderful people that saw what was going on and saw what I was wanting to do. And they just started recommending me for things. Um, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's slowly, very slowly, but slowly built from there. And, you know, you have to have patience yeah. You really, really have to have patience. And not a lot of people do, again, because they want to be rock stars. Yeah. It's I not an overnight business. <laughs> or it, no, it happens it, I mean, in the middle of the night, but it's not overnight. Yeah. I mean, it's a you're a you're a ten or fifteen or twenty year overnight success. I mean, that's kind of the joke. And you read it yeah. time and time again in interviews. But you know, I'm I feel very fortunate to have kind of the for lack of a better term, the cachet that I do right now within the music community. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that I'm getting called and, you know, I'm always going to bring my A game when I do get called. So, yeah. Well, there that, you go. That's kind there, of, that's there's kind the of hidden right there. speech right there. Bring yeah. your A game whenever you get called. Yeah, absolutely. You have to. Very cool. You absolutely have to. Maybe we should switch gears a little bit and kind of go into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts here of when you have a recording session. So let's get a little technical, shall we? My first question that I wanted to ask you here is, and I think I know your answer, but (laughs) I'm going to let you answer it by yourself. Never assume, Um, Chris. Never assume. I know. I know. But when you go into a session, do you generally bring – what's the size of your kit is essentially what what I'm trying to ask you. (laughs) It's session dependent. Um, I tend to, I tend to, everybody take a shot right now. (laughs) Yeah. I tend to run one bass drum, one rack tom, two floor toms. Mm -hmm. So it's a five piece kit, but it's a one up, two down as we call it. So I'll usually come in with that. I might bring an additional bass drum if they want, like I'll bring an 18 and a 20 or I'll bring a 20 and a 24 or whatever. And one will be tuned up really, really high. One will be really thumpy. As far as snare drums go, I'll probably bring a half a dozen snare drums. Oh wow! Um, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a Ludwig. I'm I'm fortunate enough to be a Ludwig endorser. I've got a lot of a lot of snare drums. It's a I've small a, company. I've, I'm I'm aware of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Jeez. yeah. It's a, it's so did a, you just a, say a, a dozen snare drums per per session? 
No, six. Oh, half six. A dozen. Half dozen. Okay, sorry. I missed that part. No, no, no. Half a dozen. So, you know, I'll bring a Black Beauty. Sure. I'll bring, I'll bring like a six and a half superphonic, like the Bonham snare drum. I'll bring a couple of different wood options. I'll bring, I, I'm a really big fan of eight inch deep snare drums for that birthday cake with a baseball pat, bat kind of gushy sound. And then for cymbals, I'll usually bring Eh, I'll bring two bags of cymbals, basically. So that's two sets of hi-hats, two rides, five or six different crashes, some effect cymbals. It just, that way I can, no pun intended, kind of cover any bass that the producer or the artist or the engineer wind up throwing at me. Or covering so, any drum for that matter. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and then, you know, different, different, different mufflers and stuff as well. Just ways to be able to adjust the tone of the drum kit. So if you want that Abbey Road super dead tea towel kind of dead thumpy thing, I can do that. I do you bring tea towels? Um, I'll bring tea towels. And then I have, uh, I've got relationships with a couple of other companies like Big Fat Snare Drum and Snare Weight as well. And they do, Snare Weight in particular has this wonderful device called an M1. Mm-hmm. And basically, it is a piece of leather, and uh, like a, a, with a little half of a binder clip type thing on it, and you can just attach it to the rim. Oh wow! And it takes just a little bit of the overtone of the edge off of toms or snare drum, but it doesn't get goopy and nasty like moon gels and other stuff like that do. Sure. Hmm. So I can use it for ever as long as I take care of it. So I'll I'll utilize those things quite a lot as well, and then tea towels, like basically anything. I'm I'm putting any one of a number of different things on top of the drums, from cymbals and gongs to tea towels to sleigh bells or tambourine jingles. It just all depends. Sure. Mm. So you bring a fair amount of gear of both shells and cymbals to be uh-huh. prepared for whatever you might get thrown into. But then, uh-huh. it's, it's, and I'm assuming here, but then I'm guessing once you kind of find the sound that's appropriate for the, the session, you're probably using as few kit pieces and symbols as is required. Or is it a comfort factor for you to have sort of like your normal live kit there? Or do you, do you feel lost if you're missing a couple of pieces, I'd say? No, not at all. Not at all. There have been plenty of sessions where I've had, you know, kick snare hat and that's it because that's what was required. I don't want the instrument to play me. I want to be able to play the instrument. So I don't want to have my frame of reference be an entire drum kit. I want my frame of reference to be the song. Sure. So Mm, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So is it safe to say that with what you've just said right there, if somebody asked you to play a cardboard box for the drums. I've done it. Yeah. Oh, I've you've done, done it. it. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've done it. There's a great I remember reading a great story with Kurt Biscara. Uh he was doing the what was it? He was what was it? The Wildflower album, Tom Petty's Wildflower album or something. And they couldn't quite get the vibe right. I think this is the story. They couldn't quite get the vibe right on the drum kit. And apparently Kurt was in the, he was in the control room, just kind of slapping his knees 
you know, and like tapping his tummy or whatever. And they wound up miking him and doing that because that's what the song required. There you go. So yeah, I've had people like, you know, it just doesn't have that thing. Could we try this? And it's like, yeah, sure. Bring in the cardboard box or, <laughs> you know, rather it, it wasn't a cardboard box. It was actually, um, I didn't have a cajon with me. Mm-hmm. So somebody literally took a drawer out of something and oh, I just nice. played the drawer. There you go. When that's, that's basically, all- that's basically how cajones were created anyway. They were just, you know, drawers that, uh, you know, cause it was the only thing that was available to, you know, on a dresser. people that basically, yeah. Hmm. Well, that, you know, that, that's another interesting thing. It, just to make a quick side note, the, the drummer from The Killers, Ronnie Venucci, mm-hmm. I emailed him not too long ago asking about a certain drum sound that he had gotten because somebody asked me to do a mix in the sound of The Killers. So mm-hmm. I emailed him and said, dude, how did you get that sound? He's like, oh, we well, we, this is what we did. And then I followed it up with like, are you okay with beating on something? And he's like, dude, I'll beat on anything. It doesn't matter as long as it fits what we need to do. So it, yeah. it and, and I find that seems to be pretty common amongst drummers that are on the professional ilk of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, you just can't be too up your own ass about stuff like that because <laughs> it's, I mean, it, you really can't. Like, I'm, I try so hard not to bring my ego into any situation. Obviously, we're talking now, so there's a certain amount of ego associated <laughs> with this because it's a conversation. But you know, when I step foot on stage or st- set foot in the studio, I don't want you to know it's me necessarily. I just want you to know that it feels good. I just want you to be able to tap your foot to it. I want you to know that, well, I got, I got nothing bad to say about the drummer. That's fantastic. That's a good spot it, to be in. I, I'm going to do pull a sports reference here, right? Because I, I think it, it's very apropos to what you're just describing there, Christopher. When you're watching any kind of sport event, if you don't notice that there's a ref in the game, the ref is doing an amazing job, right? Sort of staying out of the way. And I think in the session world, as you're describing there, or even if it's the live thing, right? If something jumps out at you in the wrong way, even if it's sort of like positive, right? Mm -hmm. You're, You're kind of overshadowing, and like you said, you're injecting your ego into it. Unless mm-hmm. you're, of course, hired to, to do that, right? But if you're there playing for the song, whatever the artist is, primarily the singer would assumably be the face of, of the act, right? Mm-hmm. You're there to support them. So yeah, I think that that's a, a great, great way to, to describe it, like you just said. That, that's, that's really, really cool. It's yeah, really and cool. it takes the time to be able to develop that. I mean, I don't think a lot of people have that innately, naturally. It takes time to be put in situations where all of a sudden you're like, Oh, that's right. It's not about me. Is it? Hmm. And after you have enough of those experiences under your belt, you really are able to start appreciating. Oh, right. What's important is what's coming out of that person's mouth. Yeah. Not whether I have a 1923 Ludwig brass snare drum or, you know, dig me. I just did whatever album or whatever. It's not about that. (laughs) It's about helping whatever emotions the song is trying to convey. It's about helping to convey those particular emotions, those particular thoughts. Sure. Do you think that the ability to sort of disassociate yourself or let's say your chops from the song, do you think that that comes easier with 
a certain amount of experience, just like you described, or do you think that it's it can be one of those cases where perhaps a younger artist or at least an, a less experienced artist are so eager to sort of prove their mettle, if you will? Like, look, I mm-hmm. can do all of this, that you're sort of overplaying and forcing your style into a certain situation just because you're so eager to prove yourself, but you haven't realized yet that I don't have to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's all a matter of temperance, really. Mm. You know, you have to temper your playing, you have to temper your ego, just as you would temper a piece of metal, basically. So over the course of time, things are going to get tempered in a way, hopefully not in a, not in too, too acerbic a way by you know, by an engineer or a producer that was like, dude, can you just, and like you get pulled aside and you're like, Hey, you know what? What's really required is this. Do you think you can do that? Yeah. It's like, Oh yeah, sure. Okay. You have to want to do it again. You have to be willing to do it first, but then with experience, I think it's only naturally going to happen. And if you don't learn with those particular experiences, then there's absolutely no way that you're going to continue to get called for, sessions it's just not going to happen so that's the way that i've looked at it that's the way it's worked out for me cool that's a good way for it to be looked at too i agree I all agree. right so let's kind of go back to your nuts and bolts area here chris and add into the next step of the drum kit size how often are you bringing new skins for your drum heads and do you actually carry old skins as well or once you put new ones on that's it once i put new ones on that's it I have a relationship with Remo, so when I change drum heads, again, you know, pre-pandemic, I would bring my old heads up to the Remo factory, which is up off the five in Santa Clarita, because they recycle all the different materials. Oh, that's awesome. So they recycle the mylar, yeah, the aluminum, great. and all that. What I'll do is I'll change top and bottom, and I'll put the date on the bottom head Oh wow! Uh, of when I've changed it. That way I have a sense of, okay... This head's been on this long. That means that I've at least done two head changes on the top. So I'll probably change the bottom heads uh, probably once a year. Okay. And then the top heads, it really just depends on use because I've got a ton of different kits. Sure. So the kit the kit that's getting the most use is going to have head changes uh, a bit more frequently than others. But, you know, probably a couple times a year, I'll okay. rehead the tops of the kits and the head type will change. I've been, I've always been a big fan of coated heads on top. Mm-hmm. And I've gone back recently to clear heads on the bottom. Just a little bit of snap, a little bit different, something different in the sound. So sure. basically, you know, coated on top, clear on the bottom. And, you know, bottom head once a year, top heads you know, twice a year. Right. So and along the lines of, of changing the heads, the type of tuning, do you tune to the key of the song? Do you tune drums to just themselves? How do you go about doing that? I tend not to tune to the key of the song because, again, drums ultimately are idiophones. So they, you're not able to really extract a pure, perfect pitch out of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm tuning the drum to where I think it wants to go. And each drum is going to have a particular range. Like mm-hmm. you can tune a G string, you can tune a G string lower or higher than a G, sure. but there's going to be a point where it's like, no, it's going to break <laughs> or whatever. Right. 
and I don't want to choke the drum out either by hitting it too hard or by tuning it somewhere that it doesn't want to go. Now, if there's a particular effect that somebody is going for, I'll, I'll entertain messing around with the tuning of the kit, but I tend not to be a big fan of tuning to the key of the song because I don't have the luxury of like a band like tool. Sure. A lot of their songs tend to sit within the range of D yeah. you know, they do the whole drop D thing and all that. So it's easier to tune there. If you know that your band consistently is in that particular range, then sure. If you want to tune to that and, you know, kind of give everything a little bit more power and oomph. Sure. But I, I don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. And I like something that Steve Jordan said, where I'd rather have a lot of drums and have one drum that I know does this thing really well and just leave it. Hmm. That's almost That's like having it. a limiter that you have set in a rack where you have the input and the output marked with tape. And you know, this is the ideal input output section for this particular yeah. piece of gear. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, to, to bring it even, you know, closer to the instrument realm, you know, you're going to go in with a telly or maybe two tellies because one of them is strung with eights and one of them is strung with twelves. Your Les Paul is going to be this particular thing. Your Strat is going to be this particular kind of thing. You're not going to change the strings on your telly from an eight to a 12. You're just going to pick up another telly sure. that has yeah. the right string yeah. gauge on it. So that's kind of the way that I approach it. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up there. And I'm almost embarrassed to say that I hadn't thought about this, but it makes sense when you bring up tool because I believe this technique of, of tuning to the key of the song can be a little bit more prominent in the metal world. Mm-hmm. But obviously a lot of better, certainly like modern metal, when you be having these extreme down tunings, there's usually a reason why you do that. And that's because you're, you know, you tend to utilize that sound, but that also means that that's the sound and the key that you might be using on most songs, as opposed to a, a pop record where, okay, here we have a song that's an A and then the next one is going to be an F sharp and then the next one is in D. So I never thought of that, Christopher. That, that that's, makes a lot more sense to me as opposed to, to just having it, this is the natural resonance of the drum type of thing and that's where it sounds the best and let's just leave it at that. Yeah, and I also appreciate the fact that in a lot of the pop type environments that I'm playing in, there's going to be a layer of samples over the top anyway. Yeah. So I want to be able to give the best natural sound that I can. And given that there are, you know, smaller budgets and limited time, I don't want to spend time, you know, retuning a kit. I mean, do we have the sound good? The pre's are good? Mic placement's good? Okay, awesome. I know you're going to drop a whole bunch of samples over the top. Let's get the take. Let's yeah. let's get the songs. Let's make it happen. Sounds get good. that vibe. Get that performance. Yeah, very much so. Let's take a moment right here and do a quick break for a word from our sponsors. We're back and we're going to talk a little bit about miking techniques with Christopher here. So the first thing is, how do you go about it if you're dealing with miking your kit? Uh, over a lot with a lot of trial and error, obviously, I've you know I've come to appreciate phase and the Hydra that that particular thing can be potentially. But in terms of mics in my own studio, because I have a small space, I tend to have mics on the toms that 
will clip on as opposed to having a lot of floor stands. Mm-hmm. So does that present so that a real cuts, big problem on the hits though? It, the, it really doesn't. Okay. It really doesn't. The, the vibrations don't really translate. There's not a lot of rumble that's coming off of the, the clip itself. You know, you're still getting that initial attack. You're getting a nice decay and I've not really experienced much problem with that as far as the toms or the snare drum are concerned. So, and, and which mic brand are you using on those? I've I've been using the Sennheiser the 904s no nine, uh Sennheiser 900 series <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> there you go. yeah yeah the 900 series yeah and then um on the snare drum 57 top and bottom for both on the overhead yeah wow yeah I mean I, I'm 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 always experimenting sure. So I'm thinking about getting an SM81 for the bottom of the snare mic as a as an upgrade, uh, like we were talking about a little bit the other day, you know, because I'm not, and we'll get into this more a little bit later, I assume, but you know, I don't have, I'm not worried about an e- a separate EQ channel for the bottom right snare or the hi hat. I'll just use a mic that has you know the ability to high low or just you know neutral. So the mics are pointed pretty much toward the center of the drum and the rack tom mic as I'm looking at it maybe is at about one o'clock or so or between 12 and one. The um, first floor tom is again probably between 12 and one and then the second floor tom is it's around 11 just a little bit before 11 maybe just a little bit after 11. Mm So I'm not picking up anything else all right. that much. The overheads are equidistant from the center of the snare drum. Yeah. How do you go about yeah. measuring that? Are you using a string or you got some mathematical formula that you're using? No, there's no real math. I have a tape measure. Mm. And no. how, well, how far do you like to, the to use those? Concept. Uh, what, uh, uh, how far uh, do you like to uh, place them apart or, or from the snare? How? It's a triangle that's about four, four and a half feet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So I, I, they're they're closer because I'm using larger, darker symbols. So I don't have these really splashy, high endy type symbols. Right. Um, they're Istanbul, they're Istanbul Lagops. so they're hand hammered and they just have a beautiful shimmer. And so I can get away with dropping the mics a little bit. Okay, how close um, to now? We got the distance, obviously, but how? With the placement of your symbols, how far away from the actual symbols are you generally with your your overheads? Probably three feet. Okay. Three feet or so. All right. And again, okay. spread four, uh, maybe five feet apart. Right. And then same so. distance to the center of your snare type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then the mono, the mono room mic, that's about six six and a half feet in front of the kit okay. at about high chest level. I'm five eleven, So around there and I'll be, play with, I'll play with the height. Yeah. Depending on what symbols I'm using. Cause I don't want a lot of wash from the symbols. I'm getting that from the, I want to be able to hear the entire kit. Right. Yeah. In that mono room mic and just, you know, and then you have to balance the way that you're playing as well. So Ooh, it's imagine nice that to concept. <laughs> yeah. It, it's nice to just listen to the mono room mic and I can be like, okay, so I need to lay off a little bit on the hi-hat 
you know, dig into the kick a little bit more and, you know, just make your adjustments from there. That's very right. much how those guys did it way back in the era of, of what well, Frank Sinatra. They had one mic in the room. Everybody was yeah, placed accordingly much. the distance they wanted in terms of the mix on that mic. That's sounds like you're using it kind of the same way to approach how you're hitting the drums. Yeah, trying to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's something that I've come across where I think it can be difficult, let's say, for, for some players that are primarily live drummers. Where they're and, constantly bashing. Yeah. It, and I think for, for some, it's difficult to sort of alter their playing style for another sure. medium when you're in the studio, where you might have to adjust a little bit regardless of what instrument you play because you're now aware of everything that's going on and you're picking up every little thing, right? So Exactly, exactly. Due to the length and the in-depthness of this interview, we have decided to split this into two episodes and we will be back with the second half next week. Thank you for listening.